Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Welcome to the Beyond the White Coat podcast, conversations at the heart of medicine. This podcast shares thought-provoking perspectives from unique individuals while diving into issues affecting the academic medicine community. These are the stories of students, residents, faculty, practicing physicians, and other leaders who provide unparalleled care to patients and communities and are at the cutting edge of medical research. This is the Beyond the White Coat podcast. I'm David Scorton, President and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, and I'm talking to you from my home because these are hard times right now. Living through a global pandemic like this one is tough on all of us, as I surely do not have to tell you. The emotional toll sometimes surfaces in tragic ways, as recent news of frontline caregiver suicides sadly reminds us. But you don't have to be a frontline health worker to feel immense pain, stress, anxiety, and grief during these times. All of us are under significant pressure, whether you're a small business owner, a parent, a child, a faculty member, or leader of a medical school or hospital, a researcher, an educator, or in any other walk of life. And the causes of these emotions are not only linked to the lethality of the virus, but to the unprecedented economic conditions shaking the very foundations of so many lives. So let's talk about stress and how it's affecting all of us right now. And in particular, those of us like me who qualify as high risk for this virus because of our age, because we're feeling the emotional strain in different ways. On this episode of Beyond the White Coat, I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Ripp, Professor of Medicine, Medical Education, and Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Chief Wellness Officer and Senior Associate Dean for Wellbeing and Resilience at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Ripp and I are here to talk about the concept of well-being for all of us, but especially for older populations too. Thanks very much, Dr. Ripp, for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, I hope this doesn't seem like too obvious a place to start, but tell me, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's, um, we're, we're a little past the month of the peak of the uh, COVID pandemic here in New York City. Um, and it's, it's certainly been, uh, you know, in a very intense period of time uh, with uh, lots of different uh, phases and, and uh, sort of uh, issues that we've evolved through as we've gone uh, according to that pandemic curve. And um, we're just, uh, we're, we're taking it very much uh, a week at a time. Yeah, you've been through a lot. There's no question about that. And really around the world, people have been watching the bravery and the heroism really of people in New York City. Can you tell me what the mood is like at your institution at Mount Sinai? I know New York has been hit hard by this virus. How are you focusing on your colleagues' wellness? Tell us a little bit more about your approach and how that's working in this particular circumstance. Sure, I'm happy to. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's not a question that I can necessarily uh, answer quickly and probably should give a little bit of background as it relates to what I was doing before all of this started uh, in a way to kind of inform uh, my answer to how we're doing now. Um, so I, I, you know, as you as you mentioned, I am the chief wellness officer uh, at Mount Sinai, and uh, you know, relatively new position uh, in general. Um, but much of my work, uh, the focus was on 
looking at ways to promote meaning in work and professional fulfillment um, for, for a large workforce uh, at Mount Sinai leading up to, uh, to the events that we're, we're speaking about now. Uh, most, of, most of our efforts focused on looking at how the system uh, influenced well-being and uh, that, you know, kind of understanding the way in which the efficiency of the workplace and the culture of medicine uh, all uh, interplay to to affect the, the those of us that are that are learning and working within it uh, was very much where our, our focus was and um, we created a, a fair bit of of infrastructure um, to try to uh, engage and, and develop initiatives to do that uh, not only because it's the right thing to do obviously you know there's there's uh, we're concerned about an epidemic of burnout. Um, but also uh, because um, there's a good reason to believe that if you're a health system and you want to function optimally, that there's a, a lot of uh, important outcomes tied to, to well-being, um, whether, it's, uh, whether it's quality of care, patient experience, uh, the, the efficiency and productivity of, of a health system. So all, all those things that are important uh, for a health system and, of course, uh, the moral imperative to, to take care of our own uh, was, was what was kind of infused all of our efforts leading up to, to COVID. So um, what's, what's happened really uh, in, in the midst of this pandemic is that we've kind of had to pivot our, our efforts uh, a bit. Uh, and we relied heavily on uh, the infrastructure we put in place to, to help inform uh, the way in which we would try to meet the needs of, of our workforce. It's in this in this period that I think a lot of people are finding themselves processing just what it is they've been through and and of course grieving grieving for the losses of our own we've lost you know many of our own employees and of course uh, we've seen a lot of patients uh, who've died and I, I don't think anyone here in New York uh, you know to to finally come to the answer of your initial question about how how am, how are we doing how am I doing I don't think any of us really feel unscathed by all this uh, we've all been been touched very personally. Um, in one, one way or another. Um, we have some preliminary data from a survey that we've done that suggests uh, uh, that many of our, uh, of our workforce have experienced the personal loss, a uh, friend or colleague. So that's uh, sobering. Um, so so that's, that's where we are now and kind of where we, where we came from. So, you know, the, uh, the area of clinician well-being has been of great and growing interest to the profession for years, really way preceding the pandemic. And then now on top of the burnout and other issues that we've seen growing in recent years, there's the pandemic, which is just clobbering us, especially but not exclusively those in so-called hotspot areas. What can you tell us about uh, any other general thoughts about clinician well-being, both related to COVID and just in general? At some point, this pandemic is going to recede. At some point, we're going to have vaccines. Uh, but give us your your point of view in general about clinician well-being, where we are in 2020, related to the pandemic and even otherwise. We'd love to hear. I'd like to think that that prior to the pandemic, we had gotten to a point where uh, clinician well-being had had reached an appropriate, you know, th there was an appropriate spotlight placed on on clinician well-being, um, and that's because you know for some of the reasons I, I already mentioned, as it relates to you know not only the moral imperative to to help uh, to help clinicians who are who whose well-being may be suffering, um, but also because it just it makes good sense if you want to optimally run a health system. Um, we had also gotten to a place where there was you know recognition that it was it was really largely about the system 
um, that, you know, you could empower an individual with some tools to promote their own well-being, and those tools are effective, and there's evidence behind them, and, and should be a component. Um, but really, the focus uh, is on um, creating a system that enables our, our clinicians to, to do their work uh, most effectively. And if we, you know, kind of the premise is if we if we enable people to do their work efficiently, you know, they're, they're likely to derive meaning from it by the nature of the work. And if we promote a culture of well-being, uh, both of which really occur at the system level, that's going to that's gonna be at the heart of this. And without getting deeper into it, that's kind of how we've approached it. Um, all of that got disrupted. Uh, and then, you know, if you layer in, uh, so not only just, you know, eating, finding a meal and getting to work, transportation, caring for your family, uh, but then layer on that concerns around your own personal safety, uh, which I put into kind of your basic needs category. There all of a sudden emerged a, a very big area that that became, uh, you know, central uh, and particularly early on when when things were really getting disrupted and we had concerns around, uh, you know, uh, equipment and so forth, which we, we have far less now. So in addition to meeting basic daily needs, the two other elements of our pandemic well-being response um, focused on things that that made sense prior as well. Um, but a real heavy focus on communications. We, we recognize that communications are at the heart of, of promoting a culture of, of well-being. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great if you care about people, but if they don't know it, if they don't hear it, then, then you know, they, they won't recognize it. And so um, I've never been more struck by the importance of, of just regular, transparent, authentic, humanistic communication. And uh, I think we've, I'm really proud of the, the work that our communications team has done and we've, we've helped inform that process. And I hope that that, uh, I, I expect that that'll continue. So communications has been central. And then, and then of course, the, the psychosocial mental health needs, which were a part of, of what we were doing before, uh, but now have risen in, in uh, level of, of concern. Uh, because of course, what we, what we anticipate, not so much what we've seen already. We've seen a slight uptick in utilization of resources, uh, but we anticipate more. And the, the the folks who study trauma, you know, can can speak to the curve that you know there's sort of a honeymoon period. In fact, where you may you may actually be uh, um, have elevated mood because you feel like you know you've been contributing to to an effort uh, uh, and doing some good, um, but that there we do see this sort of disillusionment that that follows. And so of course now we're we're concerned um, that now that we we're on the sort of downward slope of this of this initial wave of the pandemic, um, that that you know we may be seeing more and more uh, um, psychosocial mental health needs, uh, and so have really uh, centered our focus on on providing crisis care twenty four seven and one on one care, group debriefs, and and then um, screening in the in the longer term for for some of the more serious negative consequences. Um, so that, that's kind of that's kind of the the before and 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 the present. Well, that's very very interesting. You know, there's been so much discussion of preparedness throughout the pandemic, national preparedness and local preparedness. Just looking backwards a little bit, you obviously were thinking about a day like this. Maybe you weren't thinking about the magnitude of it, but you certainly were prepared in your own career. And I'm quite familiar with Mount Sinai from my years in the city, and know that that's a very well prepared med center. Did you feel prepared when you were at the peak? Did you feel like those days and months and years of preparation got you ready to deal with what you had to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is is yes and no. Um, you know, I think uh, I think 
what we're experiencing, what we're all experiencing worldwide is, is, you know, first. So to, you know, for those of us, you know, uh, living right now. So in, in that way, um, you know, we, we, you know, much of what we saw, we, we, you know, have never experienced before. And so it's hard to say that, that we were fully prepared, but I, I do feel, I'm very, I'm very proud of the way our uh, health system has responded. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, I think that's not just a platitude. I think, um, there's a there is a sense of um, of inspiration that many of us have felt um, as you know having a, a role in participating in our response and you know much of the of of the um, of the sort of nuts and bolts of preparedness uh, were were very much in place. So in terms of the nuts and bolts of of being prepared for something of this scope, I think the pieces were in place to enable us to 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 be prepared. Um, and yet we're now we're now processing processing what we've been through, um, and realizing that this is something that that you know is is unprecedented. You know yeah. your background in geriatrics really caught my attention, uh, because a long time ago I, I directed a division of general internal medicine, which at the time had geriatrics within it, and we're learning that this particular virus is taking a particular toll on older populations, as many illnesses do. And that's not, as I understand it, just because they're more vulnerable to complications if they get sick, but also in part because of the emotional toll of all the social isolation. Can we talk a little bit about that, uh, your thoughts about that? Sure, sure. And I still am a practicing physician and our, our um, as it happens, our, uh, my clinical work is with our uh, home-based uh, primary care and palliative care program, the Mount Sinai Visiting Doctors. And most of our patient base, uh, by virtue of, of the, the group that we take care of, our people that are ostensibly homebound, um, most of that group are, are geriatric. So I, I'd like to think that you know that experience as a clinician can best help inform my answer to this question. You know, probably more so than than uh, my role as a chief wellness officer. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there, there's multiple layers to the answer. One, of course, this virus seems to differentially. Uh, Affect that age group, uh, and so the toll, you know, as we've seen from reports or, uh, on deaths in nursing, nursing homes and so forth, uh, is is uh, particularly uh, uh, serious. Um, there's also the issues around the isolation. So our population of, of homebound elderly is already uh, somewhat isolated, but we can, you know, we can see firsthand that now. Um, a lot of uh, we're we're trying to decrease uh, all of the interactions because uh, that that people are having with our elderly patients because of our concern that the probably the single most dangerous thing we can do is have them exposed to people you know in general um, and so uh, I think that's really hastened and, and exacerbated the isolation um, that that our our folks have have seen and then. Um, the other issues around around geriatrics and sort of the tie to palliative medicine um, has been, uh, as one example, you know, a, a lot of the older patients that come into the hospital, and this extends to other age groups, of course, but, you know, that no visitor policy uh, that so many hospitals have, have adopted for the safety of, of the patients and, of course, the people visiting. Um, has led to some really tragic circumstances. Uh, I, did, I did spend a month, I'm sorry, a week, rather. Uh, working on our palliative care service, um, and that was one of the most heartbreaking elements of all this. Is that um, you know when our elderly patients ended up coming to the hospital, they were there alone, 
Uh, I'm sure you know you've heard and seen stories about this, where you know the only interactions they're having all day are are with uh, are with you know the, the medical personnel, and those interactions are are limited again because of of a desire to reduce exposure. So just just heart wrenching to to see this, and you know I mean there's some there's like like a lot of what we hear, there's been some silver linings of, of this whole thing. Um, certainly leveraging technology to bring you know ipads into the room so that people can have video visits with their loved ones when a, when a uh, you know when when a visit is is impossible in person uh, has been one example and and also i'd like to say that i think you know our, our policies have had to evolve quickly um in 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 recognition of of some of these issues so in recognizing the, you know the no our no visitor policy very quickly had um had modifications to it, uh, particularly for our patients who are at end of life, which is, you know, largely our geriatric patients. Um, and so the the institution was responsive and kind of changed the policy to allow visitors at that at that you know critical time. And, and my personal experience is just being able to enable you know to to enable a family member to be there in those last hours of, of someone's life in the midst of all this was was incredibly meaningful. It's a beautiful thing, and it's interesting. I'll share a, a bit of personal information with you. We have a loved one in our family now who was at a university hospital uh, distant from where we live in Washington, D.C., and uh, we've been able to use uh, Zoom and other uh, techniques to stay in touch uh, in the very same situation that you're describing. But I have to admit that uh, it wasn't always easy to get the thing set up on the other side. Uh, I'm way too old to be a digital native. In fact, I'm old enough to be one of your patients. But it turns out that, uh, you know, people vary in their ability to adjust to these new technologies. So more generally, are you seeing trends in how older people are adjusting to this new reality? Are there some potentially, as we've heard in some reports, more willing to just get out there and take more risks by being out in public just because they may feel, well, their time is limited or for other reasons? How are older people, in your view, making these kind of really life and death sort of calculations? I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Sure, and maybe uh, I'll I'll bring to bear my experience as a New York City commuter and uh, <laughs> seeing what it is that I see uh, on the streets that that can uh, that can help to give insight into that question. Um, you know, I think. Um, Pandemics, you know, this has been described, and and our you know psychiatry colleagues are you know study this, and uh, I really it's you see a case study in human behavior, I think, and whether it's um, you know I, I often said as as someone who's who takes care of older patients, you know when I when I was very early in my career, I sort of had this notion that. Uh, well, you know, as you get older, you get wiser. And so, uh, you know, you, there, there are lessons uh, to be learned and that, that will obviously influence behavior and lead to a lot of, of perhaps rational behavior. But I, I subsequently learned that, you know, people bring their personalities with them through, through their life. And so if your personality is such that um, you might be someone who throws caution to the winds when you're a 20-year-old, you might still be that type of person when you're an 80-year-old. Um, and, you know, so I, I think we've seen sort of the full spectrum of, of human behavioral response as, as it comes to this on, on both ends. I mean, I, I, you know, we see people who um, we hear of elderly uh, patients in New York City who have not left their apartment in months. Um, and, you know, of course, there are ways of accommodating them and food delivery and so forth. Um, 
and, and then there are those that are out, you know, and, and I'm wearing my mask on the street, but they're not. And, um, you know, you kind of look and you sort of look quizzically and kind of try to understand, you know, what is it about this person that makes them take such a risk? So, Dr. Rip, I uh, uh, have found uh, in moments of pressure and stress for a long time, for years and years, that sometimes mindfulness is, is helpful. That mindfulness for me could be walking outside and uh, giving myself the permission to notice things visually and orally and smells on the wind, whatever it might be. And sometimes just uh, in a quiet way, uh, doing a, a bit of meditation, uh, even just uh, focusing on my breathing, for example. I'll share with the listeners uh, uh, the way I, I use the uh, mindfulness practice. Um, I uh, uh, followed the work of John Kabat-Zinn years and years ago, who did show, I, I believe, some broader medical advantages to mindfulness, just as you said, for those for whom it, it resonates. And I have a very simple practice where I uh, sometimes have my eyes closed, sometimes open, but trying not to focus, if you will, and sort of sense uh, my body's contact with the chair I'm sitting in. And then uh, as that happens, I just become aware of my breathing and just follow the breathing for a while. Thoughts come into my mind that are distracting and I don't get upset or try to push them away. I just acknowledge somehow that they're there, let them drift away and just focus on my breathing. And maybe we can take just a few seconds to think about doing that right, right on this uh, podcast. Uh, so if you're listening and you want to give it a shot, uh, either close your eyes or just allow them to uh, not focus on anything in particular. If you're standing, if you're sitting, if you're lying, just feel the pressure of your body against whatever you're being supported by, whether it's your feet, your back, your arms on the armrest of your chair, and just become aware of your breathing as it comes in and fills up your lungs as it goes out and empties and does it again. And uh, maybe try that for just a few seconds right now. And maybe the main point of the exercise is just to be aware of the present moment, as opposed to thinking about all the stresses that happened to us 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 years ago or what might happen in the future. Well, Dr. Rip, this is all terrific advice for all of us to hear. I certainly have learned a lot by interviewing you today. No matter the role that each of us is playing in this pandemic, whether as a healthcare provider, an educator, a community member, or as the personal support system for a loved one or someone else in need, I think we can all be reminded of the importance of taking care of ourselves and others' well-being during this very unusual time. Community and camaraderie are our best tools to strengthen ourselves and prepare for the still tough months ahead. So please, everyone, speak up and share your stories and experiences with your colleagues and with those closest to you. I want to thank Dr. Rip for joining me today. Your work to improve well-being for all students and residents and fellows and faculty and the patients you serve is really inspiring and I hope can be used as a model for others in academic medicine to follow. Thank you for being with us on Beyond the White Coat. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. I want to leave our listeners with a reminder for all of us. Let's remember that we are witnessing the realities of a deadly pandemic up close. And one way we can support each other is to reduce the stigma of asking for help by sharing our own stories of needing and seeking help. 
Others need to hear that seeking help is not a weakness, but rather a form of life-sustaining strength. I encourage you to reach out to me and to each other during this time. Be well, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Beyond the White Coat. If you or someone you know is experiencing emotional distress related to COVID-19, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, or please call your local crisis line. Thank you. The Beyond the White Coat podcast is brought to you by the Association of American Medical Colleges, a not-for-profit association dedicated to transforming healthcare through innovative medical education, cutting-edge patient care, and groundbreaking medical research. We'd like to extend a special thanks to our guest and the AAMC staff who made this episode possible. I'm Stephanie Weiner, AAMC's Manager of Digital Strategy. And I'm Laura Zelaya, producer and editor for the AAMC. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond the White Coat, and we'll see you next time.